My guest, Mark Seal, is a writer and author whose feature work has appeared in Esquire, Rolling Stone, Condé Nast Traveler, Golf Digest, Texas Monthly, In Style, Town & Country, Time Magazine, and The New York Times. His 2016 Vanity Fair article, The Over the Hill Gang, about a gang of elderly thieves who pulled off the biggest jewel heist in British history, was the basis of the 2018 film King of Thieves, starring Michael Caine. Mark is the author of true crime nonfiction books, including Wildflower, about the incredible life and brutal murder of Kenyan naturalist and filmmaker Joan Root, and The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, about the serial con artist Clark Rockefeller. His new book is called Take the Gun, Leave the Cannoli, the epic story of the making of The Godfather. And in it, Mark has tackled the twisty, oft-embellished history of one of the most famous and successful films ever made. And he's managed to tell us something new about something we may have thought we already knew everything about. It's a great movie book. It's a great nonfiction book. And if you're looking for a gift for the movie lover in your life this holiday season or for yourself, get this book. It's very fun to read. And you will really relish, as I did, spending time with the eccentric cast of characters who populate its pages. Mark, welcome to the Full Casting Crew podcast, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason, and thank you for that great introduction. Thank you. I worked on it. Yeah, I can tell. It was fantastic. <laughs> okay, you quote the colorful and, I think, essential Godfather producer Al Ruddy as saying, quote, it's said that a bad movie is an orphan, but a great movie has 28 fathers. How does that particularly apply to The Godfather? Yeah, I think uh, in the in the history of the film, uh, after the film was uh, such a hit, you know, there were a lot of people that that made it uh, what it is today. And of course, a lot of people came forward to say that they had a hand in it. And that was really interesting because you have all of these various stories about singular events. For instance, the um, the Mario Puzo's arrival at Paramount Pictures, Robert Evans uh, told me and also wrote in his autobiography, the kid stays in the picture, that the pages came to him. Others say the pages came to them. And Mario Puzo said the pages went to his agent and, and then came, went to Paramount. So in that one story alone, you know, you have three or four different viewpoints. And I found it was that way in, in, in several stories about the making of this movie. Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading the book that, you know, in some of your previous books, I think it's fair to say you've typically been the one who's compiling and presenting what becomes probably the first, if not the generally accepted narrative of a given story. Yes. So in this book, did you have to approach it any differently than you might have approached those other, I say other true crime stories, because there's a certain amount of crime involved in The Godfather. We'll get to that later, but. Yes, exactly. Well, yes, I did uh, look at it a little bit differently because there's been a lot of uh, material written about uh, this movie. There's been some great books. There's been a lot of videos. There's been a lot of uh, documentary. There's been documentaries. Uh, there's been memoirs by all of the various parties involved. So, you know, there was a deep well of research to uh, to begin with, and also a lot of interviews that I did was able to do uh, for the original story when I first wrote a story about the 
making of The Godfather for Vanity Fair magazine in 2009, where I was able to interview a, a lot of people who are now dearly departed. And so I was able just to kind of sift through all of the, <laughs> the mountains of research and, and materials in order to, to come up with this book. One of the things I like about your book is it gives equal time to both what I would call trustworthy narrators and a few untrustworthy narrators whose uh, colorful personalities, I think we, we're, we're glad they're there, even if as you're kind of reading some of their quotes, if you're the reader like me, you kind of maybe look askance at the truth of things. Certainly Evans is one of those. I mean, with such a slippery character like Robert Evans, do you, did you find that you had to kind of fend off his ability even from beyond the grave to insert himself into the creation of The Godfather? Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, I quoted what he said. Obviously, he was a he was very gracious to me and welcomed me into his home for the magazine story. So, you know, I quoted quoted him as uh, as the way he told me, told the story to me. And, um, you know, he was just uh, well, without Robert Evans, you know, Robert Evans, as it's been written, uh, said yes to the movie. He greenlit the movie when a lot of people might not have done that. So that was a that was a pretty major move that he did mm -hmm. that alone, you know? And, uh, I think he, his, uh, contribution was, um, was pretty large. You know, it's funny. I just watched the movie again last night for, I mean, it's probably got to be the hundredth time at least. It was, it was striking to me as I watched all the way through the credits that his name isn't even on the movie, which I guess is huh. typical of a studio executive, but I still find it kind of surprising. That is, yeah, it says Paramount Pictures, right? So, uh, yeah, but his, uh, you know, it became his obsession as he, as he said, and as he wrote, you know, it, it became both his blessing and curse. And uh, uh, it, it was also, as he told me, one of his, his proudest achievement. Now, tell me a little bit about your book begins with the unforgettable image of you getting into bed with Robert Evans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I went to Robert Evans's home and it's a quite an impressive house in Beverly Hills above the Beverly Hills Hotel. And uh, he was his uh, butler opened the door and on the dining room table, there were clippings and pictures and all sorts of memorabilia from the film. And then he made this, uh, he really knew how to make a grand entrance. His hair was slicked back, his teeth white, <laughs> his, uh, shot, his eyes staring out through, I believe, rose-colored glasses. And then he said, let's go to bed. And I said, what? And he goes, he explained <laughs> that his screening room had burned down and he, and he and his friends from that point forward had watched movies in bed. And so, of course, we were going to watch parts of The Godfather. And he said, take those shoes off in his signature baritone. And uh, uh, we both laid on the bed and watched parts of The Godfather together as he told me the story. Brilliant. Let's talk origins a bit. I found one of the most endearing characters to emerge from your book to be Mario Puzo. Yeah. And I think one of the great accomplishments of your book is that it it, it manages to reintroduce us to someone who I think has been more of a brand name than a three-dimensional person in the popular imagination since The Godfather. How unlikely a character was Mario Puzo to be the guy to write the, the novel The Godfather at the time he wrote the novel? Well, he was he's the true hero of the story. He uh, was a tortured, usually broke author with a gambling habit. 
And he struggled throughout his whole life and he became a writer, but he wrote two books. They were both novels uh, that were commercially unsuccessful, but critically fairly well received, but he was paid 3000 for the first one. I think he was paid 3,500 for the first one and 3000 for the second. So he was going in the wrong direction <laughs> and he needed money. And uh, <clears throat> so he, one day, one day or one night, he suffered a gallbladder attack and he was driven to the VA hospital in New York city from his home. Uh, and on, on, when he arrived, the gallbladder pain struck and he fell out of the taxi and landed in a gutter. And he wrote, and he later told time magazine that there staring up at the night sky was when he made a vow. He said, that's when I decided I was going to become rich and famous. And what he decided to do was take one character from his last book, somebody, an editor who was turning down, I guess, his next novel and told him, if only this new novel had a little more of that mafia stuff in it. And so he started thinking about that. And he went home to his uh, house in suburban New York and in, in his basement office on his manual typewriter, he began to dream up the Corleone family. Uh, with research from uh, the Senate hearings on organized crime that were occurring at the time. And, and I was also struck by some of the kind of forgotten catalysts of the film or even the book. I mean, people like Saul Braun or George Weiser, Ed Walters, people you mentioned in your book that really have as much to do with the book becoming what it was or even getting published, let alone the movie. Could you talk a little bit about some of those kismet moments from some of the ancillary people who helped get this book published and the film made? Yes. Paul Braun for one. Yeah. He was working at Putnam and he, uh, he was running a contest to find the the best unpublished novel in America. And it came with like a hundred thousand dollar prize and a movie deal. And he could not find a winner. And he met Mario Puzo and, and uh, brought him to Putnam. And while P Puzo, you know, he thought Puzo could win the contest. Why Puzo did not win the contest. I'm not sure exactly why he uh, had an introduction to, uh, Putnam Publishers, and uh, they gave him a, a small advance, which he gambled away immediately by taking his family to Europe. And from that point on, he he had left the, the manuscript with his agent uh, and with instructions not to show it to anybody. But when he came home from Europe, uh, I think many more thousand dollars in the hole from gambling uh, at all of the casinos that in Monte Carlo and London and who knows where else. Uh, he was told that uh, they had not only showed it to a paperback house, but the paperback house was offering almost four hundred thousand dollars for the uh, for the manuscript. There's a, there's a great scene in your book where he he goes home out to Long Island, and no one. It's not that no one's really happy for him. It's sort of he he the numbers are so dwarfingly huge and unrelated to anything in their experience that his family can't even really grasp it for a few days. Exactly. Yeah. The, you know, his, his mom versus 40,000. She was so <laughs> proud, you know, because, you know, he had never made that kind of money before. And um, but the book was magic. You know, the book was you go back and read the book now and it's still amazing that he created this family. Um, not only did he create this family of mobsters, but the secret 
was that he created a family of mobsters that were family men and family women, and they they revered family above all else. And that's what elevated the book, and that's what Francis Coppola saw uh, in it that elevated the movie to myth. And there's a there's a there's a chunk of the book where Puzo sort of terminally stricken with various forms of writer's block. And as you said, you know, he grew up in Hell's Kitchen. He was around uh, probably the mafia, but he was not directly connected to it. And he famously said he'd never met an actual mafia member in his life before writing The Godfather. Uh, but Ed Walters was a pit boss at the Sands Casino. Yep. who has this incredible scene. I mean, it could be out of the movie Casino where he sort of just observes this strange portly man gambling and asking a lot of questions of the sort you probably didn't ask in Las Vegas casinos in the you know mid to late 60s and kind of approaches uh, Puzo. And they, they end up having this, I guess, um, mutually beneficial relationship because Puzo is certainly gambling away all his money the more that he talks to Ed. Who was Ed Walters and what, what kind of information did he give Mario Puzo? Yeah, so Ed uh, was a was a pit boss at the Sands Hotel, uh, very uh, uh, with a very interesting past in New York, and he moved out to Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, like as you say, he observed Mario playing uh, the roulette wheel, which he thought was you know <laughs> uh, mostly women played roulette back then. So that that first you know made him wonder what he was doing, and then he started speaking with him and. Uh, and it turned out that uh, he, Mario told him he was a writer. And as long as he kept playing, uh, Ed kept talking. And pretty soon, he, you know, they, they were asking each other questions and going back and forth about uh, about the mob and questions about the mob. And um, Puzo pretty much got, got a lot of research on that trip, according to Walters. That's great. And as the book becomes this really... I guess you could say it's a global phenomena as it's published, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was the, the best-selling novel of its day uh, of when it came out. It was a global bestseller. And Paramount you know, was reluctant to make the movie, even though Puzo had sold them the rights fairly cheap. 12500 advance mm-hmm. is what he received. And um, Paramount was reluctant to make it because they had made a film, the studio made a film called The Brotherhood, which uh, wasn't terribly reviewed, but it wasn't uh, a box. It was it was not a not a commercial success. So they you know, some believe that mob movies didn't play, but and, and no director really wanted to touch it. Uh, and, and so they finally came to Francis Ford Coppola, who didn't want to do it either. Uh, but he needed the money, just like Mario Puzo did. As, as unlikely as Puzo might have been to write the book, Francis Ford Coppola at the time is probably equally an unlikely director choice. How did he come to be involved in the film? Very few directors were even wanting to consider doing The Godfather, and they finally came to Francis Ford Coppola. Peter Bart, who was Robert Evans' right-hand man at the time, suggested uh, Coppola. He knew Coppola from his days as a New York Times reporter, where he had interviewed Coppola on the set of some of his uh, low-budget films that he was making. And uh, 
And so he said, I want to give it to Francis Ford Coppola. And Evans, as he writes in his book, said, what? who is he? You know, he didn't know. So anyway, Coppola was sent the book and he thought it was pretty tawdry stuff. He thought it was, he said, what is this? The carpetbaggers? You know, he thought it was, uh, uh, it had a lot of sex scenes in it. And he just, he, he didn't, he, he was reluctant to take it on. But his studio, American Zoetrope in San Francisco, uh, was uh, was was broke pretty much or about to be broke and he needed the money. And so his assistant at the time, George Lucas, said, Francis, uh, you know, we're, we're you know, the sheriff's at the door. We need to you need to make this movie and make this movie and then we can do the movies uh, that we want, meaning art films. And so Coppola went to the Mill Valley Library and began reading books about the mob and he reread the book again. He, he reread Mario Puzo's novel again, and he found something that he liked in it. And that was the story of a king and his three sons. Uh, it was the same thing that Puzo had done in his novel where he made it about the family. So Puzo, I mean, uh, Coppola found the same magic that would turn this uh, novel into a movie uh, that would become myth. And let's talk about the the casting of the sons. Let's set aside Brando for the moment because he's his okay. own topic in this film. Right. Uh, but it's, of course, you know, such a famous part of the myth that that really nobody aside from Francis Ford Coppola wanted Al Pacino to play Michael. How close did we come to having a different set of Corleone brothers in the movie? I think pretty close because, you know, Coppola had brought his cast, the cast that he envisioned uh, to San Francisco, where he uh, did some very inexpensive uh, screen tests uh, or just filming uh, and his wife cut their hair. And he he saw this as his cast and it was Al Pacino as Michael. It was um, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, uh, Diane Keaton. As Kay Adams and James Kahn as Sonny. And uh, he said that every time he read the scene of uh, Michael in Sicily, that the face of Al Pacino came into his mind. But nobody wanted Al Pacino because Al Pacino had not been appeared, had not been seen in a movie. He had filmed The Panic in Needle Park but it had not been out, it wasn't out yet. So the studio said, who's Al Pacino? And of course, Robert Evans <laughs> said he's too short to play Michael, you know? And, but, but, but Coppola fought for him at just as he fought for everyone else in the cast. And after green test and months later, and much fighting between uh, all the parties, uh, Coppola succeeded in getting his in the cast that he had envisioned all along. Yeah, so the studio ended up spending over $450,000 testing every available actor in the world for all of these parts. And of course, you know, Coppola had jotted this down, you know, on the back of an envelope, basically, from day one. So some of the studio battles were kind of present all the way through. And uh, Pacino is so fascinating because even Coppola, his own director, at some point during the filming process, I don't want to say has turned on him, but certainly almost comes to understand the reaction that's coming back from the studio as they send the dailies out to be viewed in Los Angeles by the executives, none of whom, none of the executives can understand what Al Pacino is doing. 
uh, because in Al Pacino's mind, he has smartly understood that he needs to go through a transformation and that based on what they were filming first, which I think were some of the scenes with uh, him and Diane Keaton in front of the best in company Christmas store. Right. They weren't seeing him sort of as this powerful mafioso character. Uh, and even I think at one point Coppola says to him, look, I support you, but you need to watch the dailies and see what I'm dealing with here. Yeah. What happened was Pacino had it in his mind and it was so brilliant. It was perfect that the magic of Michael was in the transformation. He had to start slow and the transformation happened when he when he kills those two men in the restaurant, you know, Salazzo and McCluskey, when he pulls the gun out of his from off the back of the toilet and shoots them down. I mean, that's the scene where he starts becoming the godfather. But up until that point, uh, the character and the actor uh, were kind of slow going and, and people were saying, you know, what's he doing? And, uh, you know, his job was on the line. Until that scene, that magical scene, you know, with the Coppola's that had to have pink mist in the air and, and uh, had, you know, it had to be, he wrote a, a memo about, you know, how he wanted the blood to look and how he wanted the violence to look. He outlined the, I think it was 11 of the bloodiest scenes in the movie. He said, blood never seems right. He wrote, blood never seems right to me on film. And he was determined to get it right. So Pacino got it right in that scene. And from that point forward, the uh, the part was his. But before that, uh, it was fairly tenuous. And the violence as represented in that scene is so naturalistic that it's all the more Shocking, I think it still stands up to this day, specifically that scene and the way that McCluskey is shot and sort of clutching his neck wound and has the shot in his forehead. It's it's still very jarring and realistic uh, today. So it was great to read in your book about some of the special effects work that went in and actually ended up using a powder to create the uh, pink cloud behind Salazzo's head, right? Exactly. Yeah, it was quite a quite a complicated and uh, uh, a long shoot. And afterwards, uh, after they had done that scene, uh, you know, when or maybe it was before, I can't remember the sequence, but uh, Pacino was supposed to leave the restaurant and jump on the, the getaway car. But nobody had told him uh, how to do it or what he was supposed to do. So he just he left. Tore the car and fell into the street and, and uh, severely uh, hurt his ankle and had to be rushed to the hospital. Uh, and he was on uh, he had a, he had to use a cane when he got back. And that cane you can see in the scene where uh, that precedes it, where uh, Sonny is telling him, you know, uh, it, you can't go, <laughs> you have to go right up to him and, you know, mm-hmm. bada bing, right over, all over your Ivy League suit. You know, he's instructing how you have to do it. So that's the cane that uh, Pacino was actually using uh, to get around after that accident. And tell us about where Brando was in his career and how unique it kind of was for him to actually get a part like this. Yeah, so Brand- Marlon Brando, the greatest actor, arguably, of his time, was considered at 47 a has-been at that point. He was living on Mulholland Drive. His last few movies had been bombs. He uh, uh, he didn't want, he had, he had told, said that he never intended to work again. Uh, and, of course, he did not want to play a mafia don. And nobody wanted him to play a mafia don except for two people. 
Mario Puzo first, who wrote him a letter from, uh, and he was in North Carolina. Puzo wrote his address at the time, North Carolina Fat Farm. He was uh, at a reducing clinic, and he wrote him a letter saying, you're the only actor who can play the godfather with the quiet intensity that the role requires. But the studio did not want Marlon Brando. Uh, Coppola wanted Marlon Brando almost as badly as, uh, or maybe as badly as, um, Puzo had, but uh, the studio didn't. And finally, Coppola insisted and they said, OK, under several conditions, including he has to do a screen test. And Coppola, knowing that Brando, the great Brando, would not do a screen test, called it a makeup test. And he and a, a cinematographer named Hiro Narita um, and uh, uh, and several assistants arrived at Brando's house one morning. And he came out in a kimono and with his hair pulled back in a ponytail. And before their very eyes, with the camera rolling, he uh, put some Kleenex in his cheeks, said, I want to talk like a bulldog, uh, painted a mustache on it with shoe polish, pulled back his hair and became Don Corleone. And right there uh, on that video or on that tape, uh, they had... Uh, the magic of the Godfather. The, Marlon Brando had become this character before their very eyes. And so uh, Coppola took that tape directly to the man who owned the company that owned Paramount, Charlie Bluedorn, and showed it to him. And, and from that point forward, uh, Marlon Brando was the Godfather. And all you aspiring filmmakers, screenwriters, novelists out there, take heed from Coppola's brilliant political play there. He didn't go back to Los Angeles and show even Peter Bart or Robert Evans or Al Ruddy, who were the more, you know, hands-on executives involved with the making of the film. He went right to Charlie Bluehorn in New York City. He knew that if he could show this tape to the to the to the man at the top, everyone else would have to get in line. I thought that was such a brilliant move on his part. He's so so smart about that stuff at such a young age. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so, uh, you know, Brando had the part. I mean, he did it for for very little money. And uh, but, you know, he won the Oscar for it. Best Actor Oscar of 1973. It revitalized his career. And it's arguably, I would say, you know, one of his, if not the at least one of his one of his most uh, famous roles. Yeah. As I said, I watched the film again last night and I mean, I was enthralled and amazed all over again, watching Brando particularly. I mean, they're all amazing performances, but he still stands out. I mean, what he was capable of doing is almost otherworldly. You know, his, his ability to express such complicated emotions, really just with the movement of his face underneath all this makeup, which I kind of had forgotten until I read your book that you know, he had a washboard stomach. He he, yeah. he he was padded. He had he had latex padding put all over his face. I sort of, I guess in my mind, I just sort of thought that was Marlon Brando at that time, because as you said, he was kind of washed up. But to, to think about how he's acting and under what sort of prosthesis he's acting, it makes it even more amazing. Yeah, exactly. You know, from the start, you know, with that amazing, majestic start with the Undertaker's face coming out of the darkness and he says, I believe in America. Mm -hmm. And then you come back and you see Marlon Brando with that with that vagabond cat that had wandered onto the set because there were actual rats inside the old Filmway studios. And this cat was eating the, the mice and the rats. 
and Brando picked him up and the cat was purring into his microphone. They couldn't hear his lines. He was mumbling. It was so dark because the cinematographer, the Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis, was shooting it uh, like a painting. He called it the tableau style where, you know, the action uh, moves in and out of the frame. And the frame was very, very dark. And the studio, uh, Robert Evans and Peter Bart at one point said, are we wearing sunglasses? Why is it so dark? We can't see anybody and we can't understand what he's saying. Uh, you know, that that scene when it when the camera pulls back and I think the first acting you see Brando do is with his hand as he he indicates for a drink to be brought. And it's even that is just a brilliant use of his hand. Yeah. Brando at the time, you, you mentioned his deal. I was just so struck by kind of what they made him do. Yeah. And then he got certain points and he got a certain amount of week. Not very much, even in those days. But in the end, he needed some money. And so he sold his points back to Charlie Bluedorn and Paramount. And they ended up being worth like $11 million later on. Yeah, so the deal was not great financially, for sure, for Marlon Brando. But, you know, uh, the prestige of that role, I'm sure, was worth its weight in gold. At the time, nobody was really making a lot of money, none of the the actors, because it was supposed to be a low-budget film, you know. But look what happened. I mean, you know, in the beginning, Coppola insisted on New York. The studio wanted it to be shot in either St. Louis or Kansas City or somewhere that wasn't so expensive, and they wanted it to be shot in current day, which would be the uh, Mario Puzo's uh, original script that he worked on alone on a, on it alone had actual hippies from the 70s in it but Coppola insisted that it be done a uh, period in the 40s and I think that was what made makes it so timeless. You can watch it today and it doesn't seem dated because it was dated from the start. It was in the 40s, you know, when it was shown in the 70s. So that's what makes it so fresh and so new. Um, The other thing in the book that I thought was amazing, uh, Coppola was uh, kind enough to share with me a, um, a very long transcript of the production meeting between him and his creative staff, where they outline every scene in the first half of the movie with a court stenographer present. And that document shows how he had envisioned that film almost from start to finish in his head and on paper. And in that meeting, uh, no matter, you know, people have differing opinions and but Coppola is, is the leader and you can see him emerge as the leader with a certain exact vision for what would become the Godfather. Absolutely. That, that section of your book is incredible. I was just hanging on every word. It's got, you're, you're talking also about a murderer's row of film professionals uh, surrounding Coppola. You have Walter Murch, who was supervising sound editor. You have Gordon Willis. You mentioned the Prince of Darkness, the cinematographer. Dean Tavolaris, one of the most brilliant production designers in the history of movies. And Dick Smith, one of the most famous makeup artists in the history of movies. These are the people sitting around talking about how they're going to approach every scene. And to your point, when you watch the film again, you know, as tortured as Coppola was during the making of, and really as little favor as the studio did him making him film this in, I think, 56 days, which is an insane schedule. He really, he had a vision and stuck to it and and got that on the screen. I think even Brando and some of the actors sort of thought this was going to be a B picture because that was the budget, that was the schedule. And really, it's hard to remember that Aside from, you know, Brando, I mean, there are no big stars at the time in the film. So 
it's amazing that Brando delivered what he did because I've read enough film books to know that there's such a fine line between him switching it off and just sabotaging something out of self-hatred or hatred for the craft of acting or the people he was working with. You don't really get into it in the book, but what do you think was going on with Brando that caused him to rise to this occasion? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think that, you know, if I had to, if I had to just imagine what was going through, because I was able to interview his assistant who was with him every day, almost on that film. And he was just not only well-behaved, he was not temperamental as he had been on other, on other films. He was not only well-behaved, but he became an icon among the cast. They really loved him. And he was, uh, he was the leader, you know, he, from the beginning, you know, he was uh, the great Brando and, you know, he mooned the cast uh, during the, that great wet, during the wedding scene, they were having like a moon uh, contest, which I guess, you know what that is. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but he was just, the, he was kind of the leader and he was very charismatic. And I think, I think that the love of the cast, that they really loved and looked up to him. I think that that kind of played uh, in the way that he acted toward them and he wanted to do his best work. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to one thing you did say at that meeting, in the production meeting uh, with, the, with the notes that I outlined mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the book. Uh, Anna Hill Johnstone was also there. She was a great costume designer. Oh, Absolutely. And she's the one who created all those incredible costumes. You know, she would go to thrift shops in New York and find uh, costume uh, materials for costumes. And and so she was the one who, who dreamed up all of that. And I love her input into the um, into the way the Corleones had to be Corleones had to be dressed. And one other costume note I'd like to make is that James Kahn uh, found the two-tone shoes that Sonny wore in a thrift shop and he bought them purposely too small so that he would kind of have this, you know, this walk that was almost, uh, you know, you could tell his shoes were too tight. Uh, and I think all of that costuming made the movie as well. Oh, absolutely. It's costumed far beyond what it was budgeted at the time. And she absolutely was a genius. You have another funny anecdote in the book that there was another costume designer that I think everybody would have been happy to use, but she turned the movie down for an interesting reason. What was the reason? Yeah. She had done Bonnie and Clyde, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, and she turned it down because she could not get past the horse's head scene. <laughs> she said, is the horse going to be in there? And when Coppola said, yes, yeah, she just said, I just could not do it because of the horse's head scene. Oh my uh, God. You know, well, the horse's head scene was pretty bloody. You would have had to get yeah, really? out those pajamas that uh, John Marley wore. <laughs> you know, that was a pretty intense scene as Coppola wrote in his notes. If the audience, audience doesn't jump out of their chairs at this one, you failed. But people did jump for sure. Oh, my God. I mean, your book makes watching that scene all the more fascinating because the the number of takes that Coppola was making John Marley do, uh, which sounds like something he was kind of doing to everybody, uh, probably just out of some inexperience or being after something and just relentlessly pursuing it until he got it. But poor John Marley was in that bed all day uh, with an actual, you know, rotting horse's head. One of the one of the hilarious anecdotes you have is. I think it's, is it Al Ruddy's assistant who gets dispatched to just like do one of those movie things, which is like, go get me a thoroughbred racehorse head. Yeah, <laughs> it was Betty McCart. Hero was her name. And she, uh, 
I was able to interview her. She has sadly passed away. She was very, very, uh, just a wonderful woman. And she was Al's assistant. She went to New York with the production and uh, Coppola insisted on a racehorse's head because, you know, you could tell, he could tell the difference. And she had found a dog food factory that actually put, had put down a racehorse the day before. And uh, they went out and got it. So that you know, it was perfect. You know, in, in Puzo's book, he used the head. It was on the bed post. But, but Coppola insisted on having it in the bed, uh, you know, with that uh, with the actor. And the rest is, you know, one of the greatest scenes in the movie for sure. Uh, I love that scene in the movie. And it was funny to hear Coppola say that after kind of initially insisting on having the whole Hollywood section, I think he came to loathe it probably because he had to sort of leave and go to Hollywood. I'm not sure if Gordon Willis had talked him out of doing it with a second unit, Yes, uh, but it, it was hilarious because I think that's one of the great, uh, it's such a great pause in the movie fairly early on. And it sets such an important tone for not only Tom Hagen, but, but for all the people that aren't even on the screen. You know, yeah, I think the strongest moment in that scene, other than the horse's head, which is incredible, is after, you know, you see the the horses, the Marley in bed screaming and pulls back the sheets and the blood and all of that. Then it cuts to Don Corleone <laughs> and he's just looking there at Mar Marlon Brando with that expression. Ugh. And you just know from that point on that this man could do pretty much anything. Now, another great Al Ruddy maxim in your book is, quote, unhappy sets often make great movies. Is there truth there as far as The Godfather is concerned? For sure. I mean, if anything's an example of that, The Godfather was because, you know, there was an insurrection among the crew that Coppola felt he was going to be fired. Al Pacino felt he was going to be fired. There were fights back and forth. You know, the war over The Godfather was off screen, was as violent as anything on screen. Robert Evans had written uh, you know, there was there were disagreements on over everything from location to budget on and on and on. Everything was a fight and a battle. The length, you know, the studio wanted it shorter, uh, uh, reportedly. Coppola wanted it longer. Some say it was the other. I mean, you know, it was just like back and forth, everything. Above. And uh, years later, um Peter Bart wrote that one of the one of the things that made the movie great was this creative tension that everybody thought that uh, that one day would be their last and they wanted to put their best work on screen. So I think it was a series of these things that compressed and made this film great. I also think that, you know, Hollywood at that time didn't yet really have a template for how to deal with the new Hollywood directors who were going to be the, the next big thing in Hollywood. Right. So the fights that they're having with Francis are all kind of about, you know, doing things in old fashioned way. Not that Francis was like really one of those new Hollywood guys, particularly, right. I mean, if anything, he was sort of a bohemian hippie from San Francisco more than he was, you know, looking to transform Hollywood, but I'm kind of struck in a weird analogy, everything, you know, I watched get back as I'm sure you did and everything that I'm watching now I'm filtering through sort of the experience of watching something, that like your book on The Godfather takes a topic that's been so thoroughly explored and finds a new way into it. And in the same way that, you know, the music industry didn't really know how to deal with something as massive as the Beatles. And as a result, the Beatles were sort of destroyed. Whereas nowadays, because of the Beatles, you have a lot more 
framework for how to deal with acts that are that large. And similarly in Hollywood, you know, a lot of these battles with Francis strike me as just they didn't really know yet how to deal with with directors like that. Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely the new, he was on the vanguard of the new uh, movement of directors, you know, but one thing about Coppola is he started off uh, being a rising young talent at UCLA. He was the star of his screenwriting class. Uh, He was doing studio films at a very young age. He, um, you know, worked for Roger Corman as his assistant Uh, But then he walked away from all of that. You know, he walked away from Hollywood commercialism and he wanted to do art films, films that he believed in, in in San Francisco. So he started American Zoetrope there. And uh, and then he had because of money, had to go back to the commercialism that he despised. And he um, and so he took the Godfather against his, uh, you know, very reluctantly. And uh, it became this huge thing. And then all of a sudden, he's uh, back on top as, as one of the great directors of his time. And of some of the colorful and possibly mob-connected supporting actors, tell me about how Lenny Montana came to be cast in the film. Yeah, so they were having trouble uh, finding an actor to play Luca Brasi. Luca Brasi. And... Uh, you know, they had various, there were a lot of different names that they considered, but nobody was right or nobody was available or the demands were too high or for various reasons, the filming had begun and they still didn't have a Luca. And Luca was very important to the film. And uh, one day they were shooting in New York and uh, Lenny Montana, who had been a championship wrestler, he was 300 and something pounds. Uh, an opponent once said he looked like he could eat raw meat and he was quite a, quite a imposing presence. And Lenny later in a newspaper interview uh, said that he was visiting his mother when he saw these barricades uh, in the street and he said, what's going on? They said, Oh, they're shooting uh, the Godfather. And so he went over to the barricades and he's standing head and shoulders above the, uh, the crowd that's watching the movie being filmed and, and Al Ruddy spots him and say, Hey fella, can I talk to you a minute? Uh, ever do any acting? <laughs> and Lenny Montana says, uh, well, I, I was a championship wrestler for 20 years. You can call that acting if you want. And he brought him in to see Francis Ford Coppola. He walked into the trailer, probably his head scraping the top of the trailer and Coppola looked up because that's Luca Brasi. And of course he was, he was so great. He had, I don't believe he had ever acted in a movie at that point, but he had, you know, uh, been in the ring uh, countless times. And from that point forward, I mean, he embodied Luca for sure. And part of Coppola's great attention to detail is, is around the Luca character where I think it's in that meeting perhaps where he's talking about his, his vision for the specifics of Luca's room, which you do see a little bit of it. It's kind of, it's not quite as, as, as big as I think he was talking about it in that round table. But right. when, when you see what he did film, it, it is really specific to, to the character and the guns and the, 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 the mannerisms and just the way that Lenny Montana is moving in that very locked down shot that just shows you his small, like one room apartment where he's getting ready to go out and participate in this, 
this mission that the Don has given him. So how, how close was the mob to the film at the time? It's kind of strikes me as so funny that it's become adopted even to this day as the truest, you know, mob film that's ever been made, given what we talked about with Puzo really not coming from that milieu at all. But during the making of the film, it was quite a big story, wasn't it? At first, uh, you know, there was great reluctance. The Italian-American Civil Rights League, led by Joe Colombo, who was reputed to be one of the heads of one of the five families of New York, was trying to stamp out what uh, Colombo and his uh, members of his league believed was the stereotyping of Italian-Americans in film and American culture. And uh, so The Godfather became public enemy number one. Uh, it was a movie whose original title, as Puzo envisioned it, was Mafia. And that was the term that Joe Colombo abhorred. He felt it represented all of the stereotyping that he was against. And so they were uh, trying to stop the movie. They were writing letters. Uh, and then when the movie uh, came to New York, uh, real things started happening. Uh, the permits for uh, locations were suddenly revoked. Uh, people didn't want to participate by giving their uh, shops or uh, homes or whatever to the production to be filmed in. And finally, the truck drivers were threatening not to work on the set. So the movie was stalled in its tracks until Al Ruddy actually met with Joe Colombo and appeared at a league meeting. And all they wanted was one thing. And that was that the word mafia not be used in the script. Well, it had only been used at one point. And so uh, Al Ruddy agreed that that would be the word would be taken out. And by taking out one word, uh, you know, world of cooperation opened and, uh, uh, New York opened its doors and suddenly uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, people that were supposedly connected uh, wanted parts in the movie. And there's a great anecdote where at the end they're they're screening the, the finally finished film after this torturous process. And the sound department played a played a trick on Al Ruddy where they didn't they dub in, I believe, yeah. in the mafia. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, they played a trick on it where he's watching the the opening scene and the and the Undertaker says, "I believe in the mafia," you know, instead of "I believe in America," which would have been a big problem. He leaps out of his seat. What the hell have you done? No, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Another thing I didn't know until I read your book, which was great, was Robert Towns' involvement, which is such an amazing kind of last, literally last minute save for such an essential scene in the movie. Tell me a little bit about how he came to, to, to offer that service. Yeah. So there was a a scene, the secession scene between uh, Michael and the Don, you know, Uh, that had not been written. Um, It had not been written in the novel and in the script. um, Puzo had written, uh, you know, I never wanted this for you. I believe he had that line, but not anything more. And so Coppola knew he needed a succession scene. And so he knew Robert Town. Robert Town was a young screenwriter. He called him and asked him to come to New York and help him with this scene. And uh, as um, Robert Town told me for the book, he took, packed up his typewriter and he went to New York. Coppola uh, met him at the studio. I think he went out to location on Long Island or or Staten Island and he met with Brando and all Brando told him is I don't want to be 
you know, I want, he wanted something to say. I can't remember. He, he didn't want to be inarticulate. Inarticulate, right. I don't want to be inarticulate. So uh, Robert Town was staying at Buck Henry's apartment, the great uh, comic mm-hmm. actor, Buck Henry. And he uh, stayed up all night. And he looked at the cover of Puzo's novel and he saw the puppeteer's hand uh, with the strings hanging down. And uh, uh, Puzo had written uh, the lines about the strings in his book about men on high pulling strings. But um, I think Town was inspired by that cover. And that's when he wrote those incredible lines, you know, I never wanted this for you, you know, Governor Corleone, Senator Corleone. You know, I thought one day you would be the one holding the strings, you know. And so Town wrote that beautiful scene and uh, showed it to Marlon Brando the next day. And Brando says, who, you know, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And Town says, I'm just some guy. He said, I'm just some guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Coppola said, if he, if he want, you know, he, you know, what could he, Coppola said, what do you want? And Town said nothing, you know, he was paid a little bit of money, I think. But he said, listen, if you win the Academy Award, thank me at the Oscars. <laughs> and of course, when Puzo and Coppola won uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Coppola thanked Robert Town. One of the other great parts of that story is when they're driving to the studio the next morning. And I think town told you that for 45 minutes, Coppola didn't say anything. And then he finally said something like, so did you come up with anything? And town town hands him the pages. And he says, when they got to the set, uh, let's show it to Marlon turned into you show it to Marlon. He sent right (laughs) exactly in town, you know, showing this to Marlon Brando, you know, and but it worked out so great. And it's it's you know one of the most poetic scenes uh between a father and son, I think, ever written. Uh it's just so beautiful, you know, and so into this world of blood and gore and crime and evil, you have this beautiful moment between a father and a son. It's a great scene. He talks about how Brando being the makeup chair and and uh town he he asked town like adding adding to the terror of being robert town in this in this moment marlon brando asks him to read the scene to him so in a very quick calculation town's like well i'm not going to act this for marlon brando so he reads it in kind of a very flat voice yes and and then brando says read it again and he reads it again and then he goes line by line which is so brilliant you know what did you mean in this line what did you mean in this line and he makes him go through the entire scene that way and then brando had to leave i think the next day otherwise they were going to have a penalty that they couldn't afford that's right. Exactly. So they got that down and they uh, and then they had that, I think, the garden scene where Brando dies. Uh, and I think that that was the last scene that Brando did. Well, that's a great place to end. But let me ask you one thing. Was there anything that you wanted to put in this book, any anecdotes that you couldn't fit into the book that came up during your research? There were a few things that I'm, I'm hoping to get into uh, later editions. Uh, always, you know, I'm always, you know, after you do something like this, you always think, ah, I should have put that in. I should have put this in. I think I put 99.9% of everything in, but you always find things later or people tell you things after publication that you want to want to use. So hopefully anything that I didn't put in, I'll be able to get into the later edition or paperback. Well, I'll be there to buy it when you do, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, everybody listening, really go buy this book. You will not be disappointed. It will teach you a lot of new things about a film you've seen innumerable times. 
Thank you again, Mark, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for your great interview. 